All right, well, good morning. Hey, what a great morning today. I'm not still in my swim trunks. Not that wouldn't be okay, but, um, oh man, this morning we get to look at one of the, uh, like a very popular passage in the Bible, and it should be more popular than it is. It is a chapter that talks about love, the priority of love. So 1 Corinthians chapter 13, if you have your Bibles, open it up there. Uh, one of the things that we notice with 1 Corinthians 13 is if you've ever been to a wedding, they probably read this passage at most weddings, which I think is wonderful. I think about what is the most significant thing that you need in your marriage is this, an expression of this chapter. Um, people think about love as it relates to romantic relationships and, and just love within families. But the amazing thing about 1 Corinthians 13 is it was actually written about church relationships. That is the focus and point of 1 Corinthians 13. Now, we've been going through the, the book of 1 Corinthians, and we've looked at all kinds of things, at salvation. And one of the things that we learn about this church is that the church is having lots of conflict, lots of division, and they're lining up, and some are saying, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos. And so there's this division. And then there's, you know, people are suing each other, and there's conflict, and there's lack of unity. In, in this church that God has saved from an incredibly sinful town. One of the things that we think about is often we look around at our world and we think, man, things are getting so bad. They're just like we, we see people walking away from God. We see devastating commitment to sin. And one of the amazing things is as you read the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, one of the things that you realize is that what we are facing today is not worse than what people have been facing from the beginning of time. In fact, we are nowhere near as bad as it has been in the past. And so we, we often don't see things that way, and we often don't recognize that, that the power of the gospel, it is powerful, and it transforms things. And uh, so this is an amazing thing for the Corinthian church, because this whole church is full of people who are saved from an incredibly sinful culture. And that's one of the things I think about hearing the story about Orsella. Man, she is in her neighborhood, and a neighbor invites her to church, which results in her coming to know the Lord. And I think how often in our culture we are silenced, and we don't reach out, and we're afraid to offend people instead of loving people enough to be committed to and reaching out to them. And so I am just super thankful for that. Um, so, and as we think about this, uh, this, this passage was not written about the people that, in a sense, are closest to you, the people that you have a natural affection for. Paul wrote this passage to a church and to people primarily targeting the individuals they struggle with. And so I want you to think today, who are the obnoxious people in your life? Who are those neighbors that do terrible things? Uh, who are people within the church? I mean, this was actually written to the church. Have you ever gone to church and been irritated by anybody there? Um, we all know churches should be characterized by love, right? But often you can go to church and, and amongst believers, sometimes you don't see love. And that is what this passage was actually written for is the church. Now, I want to talk about love just when you think about the way the whole Bible talks about love and the importance of love and the description of love. When you think about that, it is shocking the things that God says about love. And what we're going to read today is if you really thought about it, it's unbelievable. Um, it, it is like, and one of the things that often amazes me is you'll bump into people who say, oh, I'm a Christian. So they claim Christ, but then when you look at their relationships and you look at the way that they think and treat other people, it is not defined by what this passage says. And when you think about the things that the Bible says about love, um, it is pretty radical. So I just want to read a few of those. The first is... Did you know that love is a summary of the whole law? That's what Jesus said, that love is, is 
a summary of the Old and New Testament, everything that, that, that the Old Testament said. It says, uh, Matthew twenty two thirty eight says, the great and first commandment, and the second is like it, is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your, your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. That is the number one commandment in the Bible is that you love God. And one of the things that we'll know is that when you love God, you will love other people. When you hate people, when you don't like people, when you're irritated by people, uh, an appropriate response would be to say, how can that be true in my life if I am a Christian? So if you don't like people and you don't love people, that is actually, the Bible says, it is cause to evaluate whether or not you even know God. The second greatest commandment in that same passage is that you love your neighbor as yourself. And the reason that we are to love our neighbor as ourself is that every human being has been made in God's image. And uh, that's why the Bible says that if you don't love your neighbor whom you have seen, you cannot love God who you have not seen. I mean, what a what an exclamation point on love. Uh, the other thing that we do know is that Jesus Himself is the expression of God's love. For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. And when you think specifically, this is written to the church, it's put in the middle of... Uh, chapters that talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which God has given for us to serve the body of Christ. And what we find out in 1 Timothy 1.5 is that the motivation for all ministry is love. Galatians 5.22, when the fruit of the Spirit is given, the very first evidence that you have the Holy Spirit in your life is love. Um, it is a mark of every single Christian that's how people know you're Christians, the way you love each other. And it is something in Romans 13, 8 that we owe every believer. You owe every believer love. Now, <laughs> that sounds cool <laughs> until you read the definition of love and you realize, oh, wait, I'm supposed to do that <laughs> for everyone? And then that becomes challenging. So we're going to basically see two important things today. That first... The first and foremost action of your life is that you love other people. Um, you know, everybody talks about how much we need love, and I think love is important when you see kids that grow up in homes where they're not loved, when you see people who show up to church who have had struggles in their life and they're not loved. Like, that is so terrible when a person lives their life without love. But do you know what the Bible does not say? Uh, pursue and find people who will love you. That is actually not your greatest commitment in life is that you be loved. The greatest commitment in your life is that you are to love other people. You don't need to receive love near as much as you need to be a person who expresses love. And so that's our first point this morning. We'll be considering that. And then the second thing is, it is God Himself who defines love, and we'll look at His definition of that. So let me read this passage for us this morning, and then we'll dig into this. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31, the last verse in, this, in chapter 12, says, earnestly desire the higher gifts. And he's just talked about gifts, and that we need to desire the gifts that allow us to build others up. And then he says, and I will show you a still more excellent way. In other words, love is more important than spiritual gifts. And now he's going to talk about that in the first three verses. Look at this. But if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but don't have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge... And if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If, if I 
um, deliver up my body to be burned, if I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. And then he goes on to describe, this is God's definition of love. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And then if you skip to the end of that chapter, I want to read verse 13. It says, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Okay, I want to just put up a definition on the screen of love. So the word that is used here is the word agape, and that is a a word that is rarely used in New Testament, Greek New Testament literature, Um, but it is the most used word in the Bible for love. And this is a quality of warm regard and interest in another. It is esteem, affection, regard, love. You know, this word for love is a direction of the will. It's finding your joy in something or someone else. It is sacrificing yourself for the best interests of others. It is doing what is best for somebody, not necessarily what that person wants. You know, we, we in, this, in our culture and in our world, we have a really messed up definition of love. In fact, Satan defines love in a lot of ways. The love of the world brings destruction. I've heard parents say things like that. I was sitting at dinner with the family one time, and some kids were demanding some things. And so the parents were obeying their children and giving them what they wanted from the restaurant. And uh, the, the dad looks over at me and he says, I don't ever say no to my kids because I love them. Um, that is a satanic definition of love. You've heard people who are in dating relationships say we love each other so much we can't stay apart. Um, that is a satanic, destructive description of love, definition of love. I am so driven by emotions, I do whatever my emotions make me feel. That's a satanic, destructive definition of love. Um, true love always desires people's bests. And so you would never sin against a person. There are people who take that verse on love, and they'll say, well, love defines um, you know, God's greatest commandments. And a loving God would never send anybody to hell, so hell must not be real. But what we realize is that love does not discount what the Bible says. Love brings about what the Bible says. It's not that you don't need to obey the law because all you have to do is love. The truth is that when you love, you will automatically do every command in Scripture when you love the way God says to love. So let's talk about this love as the first and foremost action in a person's life. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Um, Any of you guys ever get irritated by sounds that ever happen? You You know, yeah, it's like, I, I have a family, and I have extended relatives that are very sensitive to various types of sounds, and they'll just say, oh, I can't handle that. Or I'd be driving in a car with people, and there's like this tiny little rattle in the back of the car. It's like, pull over. we got to get rid of that sound. I can't take it. And sometimes I thought to myself, can we just ignore the sound and keep going? But what this is saying is that if you have the amazing gift of being able to speak to anybody in any language. Man, imagine never having to learn a language, but you could just talk to anybody. If you can speak in the tongue of men and angels and you have not love, you are a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. That is something that can't be ignored. That's just this obnoxious thing that drowns out everything that you just say, somebody shut that up. 
If you are amazingly gifted, but you don't have love, you will be an aggravation and an irritation to everybody. Um, one of the things that we think about as we consider love, just the definition of it, by the way, it's all action words, it's things that we do. Let's consider um, the next thing as we just look at love, so the tongue of men and angels. What about prophetic powers? Have you ever thought about the value of having prophetic powers, understanding all mystery, having all knowledge? Man, that is a powerful gift. You know, um, when you think about the amount of money that people spend to go to college and to get an education, man, the, the, the work, the labor that people invest in acquiring knowledge. Man, there's people that they graduate from college and it's like they're in debt like over $100,000. Like, what is the value of an education? Doctors graduate from medical school today with an average of a half a million dollars in debt by the time they get out of uh, medical school. And it's like you think about the commitment that we make to get knowledge. And the Apostle Paul says that if you don't have love um, and you have all knowledge and you know all mysteries, that you are nothing. Um, could you imagine if you knew so much that you could um, just like, like you knew the lottery numbers before they came out? Like, think about the value of all that stuff. And one of the things about this knowledge is that the knowledge that Paul's talking about is actually more valuable than any human knowledge. It's understanding the truth of God. And Paul is saying, if you understand spiritual truth, but you don't have love, you are nothing. You know, I think about um, wealth and riches and what the Bible says about the wisdom of God compared to wealth. In Psalm 119, 14, he just says, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much in his, as in all riches. Proverbs 3, 13 through 15 said, blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding for the gain from her is better than gain from silver, her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire compares to her. If you could have $10 billion. The, the wisdom of God is worth more than that. And Paul says, if you have the wisdom of God and you don't have love, you are nothing. I mean, that is like a shocking statement. Um, faith to move mountains. Man, the faith to move mountains. Could you imagine seeing a mountain and saying, um, jump into the sea. By the way, this is a mountain that there in Corinth they would look at. And so they might look at this mountain, and, they, and, and if you had the faith to cast, cast a mountain into a sea, man, the miracul miraculous power of being able to do that. I think about, man, how wonderful it would be to have the faith to move mountains, to do things, to heal people. Could you imagine finding out that somebody was sick and, and to have the faith to pray and to see them be restored? Or if somebody died and, and, and through faith you could pray and, and see that person raised from the dead. I think about people who have asked me to pray for them. Man, they're struggling to pass their driver's test and they're praying, Lord, please help me. If, if, I, could, if I could pray and, and I had that faith so powerful that they would pass their driver's test or just whatever a person needs that we could help them. And Paul says that if you don't have faith, if you don't have love, that that is Nothing. You know, God values those things. God values generosity to the poor. It goes on here, and it just says, if I give away all that I have. You know, the Bible talks a lot about being generous and giving. Man, that's something that God wants in every person's life. But if you gave away everything, the Bible talks about being, if you're a Christian, being willing to die. Jesus says, don't fear those who kill the body on earth, but fear Him who can kill your body and soul in hell. He's saying you need to live for God. Jesus says, unless you uh, love me more than your own life, you cannot be my disciple. So that's a valuable thing to be willing to give your life. And Paul here says, if I give away all I have, 
If I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Like, think about that. No matter what you can do, without love it is no, of no value. No matter what sacrifices you make, you get no heavenly reward. You gain nothing without love. So, this, I think, is pretty important. And that's what the Apostle Paul tells us, and it's what Jesus has told us. You know, one of the things that, that Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, you know, Paul is writing to the Corinthians about love. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, at the end of the chapter, um, he says this, he says, if anyone... He says, um, I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, and perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, and conceit. You know what all those things are? Those are all an expression of not love. And he's been talking to the Corinthians about loving and so he says, I'm afraid that when I come, that's what I'm going to find. And then in chapter 13, verse 5, he goes on and he kind of continues that thought. And he says this, he says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail to meet the test? You know, the Gospel of John was written, it records miracles. And John says that he wrote his gospel so that people would believe. And then he writes 1 John. And when he writes 1 John, he says, I wrote this so that you would know that you believe. And there's a whole bunch of things that, that John says in 1 John. And he talks about, um, do you obey God? He, he, all these tests that he gives. Do you love obeying God? But you want to know what he says over and over through 1 John? First uh, John is where he says, if you don't love your brother whom you have seen, you cannot love God whom you have not seen. You know, when you read through the tests of whether or not you're a Christian, love falls into that all over the place. It's, it's, it's full of it in First John. And so this is significant. It's important. And this is the great thing if you're a Christian. <laughs> I want to just share three things with you that is very encouraging. First thing is that the fruit of the Spirit is love. When you become a Christian, you are baptized in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes live and lives in you. The evidence that you have the Holy Spirit in your life, that's one of the things you learn from um, reading what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. The evidence that you have the Holy Spirit is not that you speak in tongues. That is not the evidence that you have the Holy Spirit. The evidence that you have the Holy Spirit, the first thing on the list is love. And that's a, an encouraging thing, right? Because when we read the definition, you're going to say to yourself, I can't do that. But what I do want you to know is that if you are a Christian and the Holy Spirit indwells you, you can do that. In fact, when Paul talks about his love for other people, did you know that Paul talks about his love for other people as actually coming from God himself? And when you read uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul's talking to this church about how much he loves them, and he says, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. So Paul loves him, but them, but you know, want to know what's happening? Is that God loves them, and because God is in him, he loves them. So as a Christian, you can love, and that is amazing. First Thessalonians 3.12, he prays for the Thessalonians. He says, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. It is God's blessing and gift that we love. Okay, so this is one of the things that I kind of love about this. Um, so this week, in fact, even yesterday, there were a couple things that happened in my life, and I won't tell you all the details, but I found myself struggling to love somebody. 
In fact, I'm looking at my actions and I'm thinking to myself, you know, that wasn't a very loving thought. And I was thinking, what a perfect realization for the day before I preach on this. Because am I putting a big burden on all of you? You know, it's like, so the Lord's like, hey, Rod, just remember, we all have a hard time with love. Um, this is one of the things I think about. You know, there was this lady who comes to Jesus and she's washing his feet and the Pharisees are thinking, you know, if Jesus knew what kind of person that was, uh, he wouldn't be letting her wash his feet. And so Jesus then tells a parable and he just asks this question. He says, um, who loves the most? The one who's forgiven much, the, the most, or the one who's forgiven? He tells a story where somebody gets forgiven a lot, somebody gets forgiven a little, and then he says, who do you think loves the most? And the Pharisees say, well, the person who's been forgiven the most. And Jesus looks at this lady that they were all looking down on, and he says, her sins are many. She was forgiven much, and therefore she loves much. You know, I was thinking about uh, what Paul says in Romans chapter 12 when he's talking about spiritual gifts. And he says, don't think more highly of yourselves than you ought, but think of yourselves with sound judgment according to the measure of faith that God has given each. Um, do you know what brings humility, which we'll come to in a little bit? It's actually accurate thinking of yourself. And often we don't love other people because we see their sins as much greater than ours. And one of the great things is that when you realize what God calls you to do and who God calls you to be, and then you look at your life and you don't see that, you recognize what a huge sinner you are. You recognize how much grace and forgiveness you need. And the more you realize how much you, are, you, you have failed, and the more you realize how much God has forgiven you, the more you love God. And so then the more you love God, the more you love others. So when you come to grips with your lack of love for people and the way God thinks about your lack of love for people, it actually then <laughs> makes it easier to love people, right? Because you realize how much God has forgiven and loved you, and it just makes you want to pour out love and grace and forgiveness on others. So I love that. The more you fail, the better you can be. That's what happens to believers. They hate their sin. They repent of their sin. They ask God for help with their sin. So God uses everything for our good. And every time we blow it, it only helps us be more faithful. Okay, let's think about love's a priority. Now let's think about what love is. We read this verse 4, love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. And, you know, God is the one who defines love. Now, I've seen people in marriage relationships, and, and they'll just say, man, I'm really struggling. I don't feel like my spouse loves me. Or people in relationships, and they're just like, man, I don't feel loved. And, and that when you actually look at the definition of love, often we don't receive all those things, right? Like if somebody said, you know, Roger, do you really love Michelle? I read this list, and I think, well, in some ways, I really love Michelle, but, but often I don't live that way. So I think it'd be fair to say, I don't love Michelle the way God tells me to. And so I'm always working on growing that in that. And I appreciate the fact that, that she loves me um, in spite of all those things. So let me just talk for a second about love and emotions. And there are some people that would say that love is not an emotion, it's a decision. And I would say to some degree that is true, that love is a decision. We decide to love people. We do not live life based on our feelings. But I do want to tell you that you cannot love people the way God intends in a way that is disconnected from your feelings. You know, feelings really are an expression of the way we think. I heard somebody say that, that what makes you angry is not actually anything that happens to you. It's how you think about what happens to you. Like, I remember this person I was talking to, 
that came to me and they were really upset because they thought somebody stole something of theirs. Like they saw this person walking away with their item and they were angry that this person stole their item. And they're like, and they looked around and they couldn't find it and they're like, this person stole my thing and I'm so mad about it. And then um, I helped them kind of look around and it was like, no, see, look, here's your thing. That other person had something just like theirs. Now, wouldn't it be weird if you realized that that person didn't steal my thing? I was wrong about that. I actually have my thing, but you were still mad at them? Like, wouldn't that, wouldn't that be odd? Like, doesn't the realization that they didn't steal your thing, doesn't that change how you feel about what you were thinking before? Our thoughts are what impact our actions. And so um, that's what it flows out of that. And, and your thinking impacts your emotions. It's interesting when you look at Jesus, Jesus looked at people and he felt compassion for them. In fact, a guy comes to him and says, what do I have to do to get to, get to heaven? And Jesus says, um, keep the commandments. And he says, okay, I've kept the commandments. He says, okay, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And he said that because the guy was rich. Uh, Jesus, when the crowds came, when people came and wanted to follow him, he just picked, what's the one thing you are not willing to do? And then he would lay that out. See, today when we share the gospel, we think, what could offend people? Let's take as much out as possible. How could we get as many people in as possible? When Jesus and the apostles were sharing the gospel, they said, God is number one. Jesus is number one. What would get in the way? Let's put that out there first. And so when Jesus says that, it says that this man rejected him. It says that the man went away sad because he had many possessions. But when you look at the account of that, it says that Jesus felt compassion for him. Jesus was one who felt compassion. He looked at the crowds and he felt compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so the thing is, is that love is not just a feeling. But when you see people the way God tells you to see people, that will change how you feel about them. And so often our feelings tell us that there is something wrong with our thinking. You know, Paul says this in Philippians chapter 2, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. You know, comfort, that's a feeling word. Affection, that is a feeling word. Sympathy, that is a feeling word. And so, we don't just live based on our feelings, but when you think rightly, your feelings will move into the category of what is right. Okay, so love is patient and kind. Let's talk about patience and kindness. You know, patience is being long-tempered, slow to become resentful, to be wronged, and to not retaliate. I think it's being patient, right? We can get impatient. Um, it is a choice. It is self-discipline. You know, patience affects your emotions. When people are just doing aggravating things all the time, you just choose, man, I am not going to be aggravated by that person. Um, so patience, it's, it's kind. Love is kind. That is proactive goodness. That is intentional when you say, I'm going to show kindness to somebody. It is being useful. It is serving. It is being gracious. And that is love. It is patient and it is kind. Think about that. Who are the people in you, your life that you just say, you know what? That person is just so kind. That's a person that is warm, that greets you, that wants to do good to you. That is kindness. Um, love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. You know, those things fall into the category of self-centeredness. You know, envy and jealousy... That, that is something internal. It grows. It can seethe. In fact, the word for envy there is this word for strong desire. And Paul actually used that talking to the Corinthians about spiritual gifts. 
They have this desire, and, and that same word for desire is to use here. They were envying other people's gifts. Oh, that person can do this great thing, and that person can do that great thing. I want to be like them. And so that's envy. It's wanting some, something that someone else has. And so for the Corinthians, that was spiritual gifts. It's having this strong desire to have something that somebody else is. You know, the Bible says, um, it says, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. You know, envy um, mourns when somebody else is rejoicing. And, and envy rejoices when somebody else is mourning. That is the opposite of what God intends. And what about being boastful or arrogant? That's full of yourself. That potentially is trying to make other people jealous. It's wanting to lift yourself up. You know, uh, pride and arrogance and boastfulness is wanting others to think highly of you. You know, the Bible taught, when, when people talk about humility, often they say, I, I want to just think humbly about myself. Well, first, just think accurately about yourself, and humility comes naturally. One of the things I find is interesting is sometimes uh, there are people that, man, they, they require a lot of grace and patience. You know, I, I've met people who they'll go off to Bible college. You know, I, I ministered really close to a Bible college, so I knew a ton of people that they're, they're first-year students in Bible, where they've done Old and New Testament survey, and they've taken Christian theology, and they're just kind of starting to learn. And then as they're just starting to learn, all of a sudden, they become so prideful and so arrogant. And it's like, okay, I'm super excited about the things that you're learning, but you realize you don't actually know very much about those things yet. And there are so many people that are so excited about their own theological knowledge, and often people who are so excited about their theological knowledge don't actually know that much yet, but they're pretty proud of what they think they know. Um, so that's pridefulness. If that person could actually think accurately about themselves, like I was hanging out with some seminary students that were talking about how wrong their teacher was about something because they had a different theological view. And one of the things that I was actually in class with them, and one of the things I said is I had just done a journal article for, read a journal article for one of my papers, and, and it occurred to me that our professor had published articles before I was born. And so one of the things I said to my fellow students is I said, you know, when was the last time that anybody asked you or me to write an article in a theological journal? You know, that hasn't happened for me yet. And he's been writing articles since before you and I were born. And yet we're pretty convinced that we know more than he knows. Like that probably is not accurate. And one of the things I thought about was just how gracious this professor was with students who would disagree with him. You know, sometimes the people who are so full of themselves, who are so hard on others, don't actually realize that everybody is pouring out grace and compassion and kindness on them. Some of the most irritating people are irritated by other people. And um, that's just a lack of accurate thinking that leads to pride. If you think about yourself accurately, humility comes naturally. So just realize when you feel prideful toward another person, it's because you don't see yourself correctly. Um, the other thing is that humility is not thinking lowly of yourself. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. You think more about other people. You ever met somebody that's insecure? Like some people are prideful. Hey, let me get the mic. I want to get up in front and talk. I want everyone to hear me. There's other people that would say, oh, under no circumstances would I ever stand in front of a crowd or say anything. Um, I feel so bad about myself. I'm so insecure. Did you know that that is also just a different expression of pride? See, when you're thinking about other people, I, I was thinking about that one Easter many years ago. Our church was going to be totally full of people, and I was feeling a little nervous getting up on stage and talking, and I just thought, man, this is really weird. I just started thinking, you know, the church is full of visitors, people who never come here. And, and why am I feeling so nervous to get up in front? You know, I was thinking about myself. 
And if I thought about, so I just shifted my thinking and I just thought, you know what? If people came over to my house, I would be trying to greet them and encourage them and I would want to be warm to them. And I wouldn't feel nervous. Like when people come to my house, I don't feel nervous. So why, when I'm at church, am I feeling nervous because there's a really big crowd? It was because I was thinking about me. So when I shifted my thought and I thought, actually, I just want to be an encouragement. I want to make everybody who shows up here feel loved. As soon as I started thinking about other people, I quit thinking about myself, and I wasn't nervous anymore. And uh, the truth is that many insecure people, many people who have a pity party for themselves, insecurity is, I want everyone to like me. That's pride. I want everyone to think highly of me. That's pride. And I'm afraid that if I do something, they won't think highly of me. That's arrogance. Or people who have pity parties. That's somebody who's mourning over the fact that other people don't think they're great. And so you can be insecure or you can be arrogant. It's all pride. So love is patient. It's kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Rude is being inconsiderate. It does not insist on its own way. Now, some of you says, I want things my way. You know, you think about that in church. Um, you know how you know when church leaders are healthy? Um, one of the ways you know that is because they're fighting for the well-being of others. You know, so many times in churches you can fight over room. I need this room. No, I want that room. Or, or, or just people, resources, the budget's tight. It's like, I need more money in my budget. We don't have enough to go around. Well, why'd you give them money instead of giving me money? You know, you know that you have healthy leaders when you have leaders that, that somebody says, oh, I, I, need, I need more money in my budget, and the other leaders say, you know what, take some of mine. Or, or you have somebody who's like, man, I really need a room to meet. And instead of somebody saying, no, this is my room, and I need this room, they say, you know what, um, we could make do with somewhere else. Give, give that room to them. It's not being self-seeking. Love is not self-seeking. And, and you know what's interesting is there's all kinds of ways that you can rationalize fighting for yourself. Um, you know what? i got to care for the people in my ministry. I'm not going to let people take advantage of them. Instead of saying, no, actually, the best thing I can do for the people in my ministry is to teach them to put others first. Hey, instead of having a nice room, we're going to go meet in the parking lot. Isn't that awesome? Let me tell you about the other people that are going to be able to use our room and, how God, and who they are and, and how we, we value their well-being. You know, it's amazing to me how often the people who are supposed to be teaching about love don't actually express love in what they do. And, and then we're confused, right? We're confused that people come to church and they don't love each other the way they're supposed to. Well, why? Because those of us sometimes who are leaders are not loving people the way God intends us to love them. Look at verse 6. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. You know, um, the most loving thing that you can do for people is to tell them the truth. We don't re rejoice and celebrate sin. Uh, I remember when, when my kids were in Sunday school and kids would get into a fight. Sometimes like the teachers or if my kids were disobedient, the teachers or other people would think that I'm going to come in there and defend my kid. Oh, how come you let this other kid do something that you know, I wanted my kid to be okay? Or teachers are afraid that if they come to me and they say, oh man, your kid's not listening, they're getting out of control, that for some reason I would like defend my kid's bad behavior. You know, I would never do that. Do you know why? Because I love my kids. Um, I actually care about their spiritual well-being. I want them to honor and please the Lord. Um, some parents get mad when somebody hits their kid, but they are not mad, as mad, when their kid hits someone else. You know, the truth is, I, would, I was way less upset when somebody hit my kids than if my kids hit someone else. 
because I actually cared about my kids loving God, wanting to love other people. And it's like if my kids were being kind when other people were persecuting them, that's like, hey, that's awesome. And my kids would come home sometimes and they would say, oh, this bad thing happened and that bad thing happened. I would say, man, that is so cool. What an opportunity for you to live out the things that God says. This is how God says you're supposed to think about that. And as parents... We're supposed to not just be teaching that to our kids. We're supposed to be modeling that for our kids. And uh, the truth is, um, you can do your best to kind of help, try to help your kids live that out. But they don't always do that, right? And uh, you can do your best to live that way, but you don't always do it either, right? And the really cool thing about that is that's part of what we model as Christians is this is who God says we're to be. And you know what? On this day, I'm not that. On that day, I'm not that. Isn't it a great thing that Jesus came and that Jesus died for our sins and that we can ask for forgiveness and we can have God's mercy and grace poured out in our life? And isn't that awesome? So we teach everyone what God says they're supposed to do And then we do our best to um, live that out, and we embrace what it means to be a Christian, and that is that Jesus died for our sins. You know, as we think about this, 1 Corinthians 13, 8 says, love never ends, and verse 13 says, the greatest of these qualities is love. Man, love is a priority. So I would just say this, if you dismiss what God says about love in your life, if you just go, Oh, yeah, yeah, the Bible says that, the Bible says this, but let's, let's get on with real living. When you just dismiss things like that, that, that should actually, first of all, that, that is a terrible disaster, and that should make you question whether or not you know the Lord. If your attitude when you see this high standard that God gives is not to say, God, forgive me for not being that, God, please, through the Holy Spirit, give me the power to live this out. Man, when we, when we read the Bible and just dismiss what it says, that is pretty bad. The second thing is, hopefully we're not all thinking about those around us <laughs> that aren't living up to this. You know, I'm going to go home and say, Michelle, do you, li- you listen to what I said today? Patience and kindness. If she's not patient or kind, I'll, just, I'll, I'll remind her. Maybe I'll play that section of the sermon for her. <laughs> Hopefully, we're not thinking about other people, and I will just say this too. If, if you feel overwhelmed by it or you just feel like, man, I could never live up to that, that is the perfect place to be. You know, God loves, He loves it when people recognize that they need Him. And, and when that's true in your life, that will be the greatest thing that will actually help you love others the way God intends you know, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and I just want to um, just say about the Lord's Supper a logistical thing. When we're done, we have tables in the back and up here. When I close and sit down, whenever you're ready, just get up, go get the bread, go get the cup, and uh, you can eat and, and drink that when you're ready. And I, and I would just encourage you, um, if you have unrepentant sin in your life, don't, don't celebrate the Lord's Supper. Um, the Bible actually tells us that when we hold on to sin and we celebrate the Lord's Supper, instead of being a spiritual blessing, it brings God's discipline and judgment in our life. So if you're here today and you're not right in your life, confess it. Receive God's forgiveness and then take the Lord's Supper. Um, If you're unwilling to confess and unwilling to repent, don't take the Lord's Supper. Let me read. Jesus says this, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays um, down his life for the sheep. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, than that someone lay down his life for his friends. And we think about what Jesus did on the cross. That is actually our example of the way that Jesus loved. 2 Corinthians Uh, 5 says this, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making an appeal through us. Again, you see God's love coming through the Apostle Paul. We implore you on behalf of Christ, 
be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That is what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper, that Jesus died for our sins. Now let me just read what Paul says here. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we remember that Jesus died on the cross. We picture that. We think about that. We think about the significance of it. Then He says, In the same way, also, He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus' blood was shed. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we celebrate this and think about this, we are reminded that Jesus is coming back. And Paul ends with this warning. He says, Therefore, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And Paul here is talking about specifically their lack of love for each other. I would just tell you, if you have bad relationships with other believers, especially, and I would just say bad relationships with people, um, that is something that you should think carefully about before you take the, take the Lord's Supper. Um, you need to confess any sin in that area. You need to be willing to go and to make things right. I think about what Jesus said, if um, you remember that somebody has something against you, leave your offering and go be reconciled. Um, that, that at least needs to be the attitude in your heart um, before you celebrate the Lord's Supper. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for your kindness, Lord. I thank you for the challenge that you've given us to love. I think about, um, God, I pray that you would help each of us to be focused more on our responsibility to love others than we are on our desire to receive love. God, I thank you for the greatest act that you did, which was coming to this earth, taking on human flesh, dying in our place, and providing the righteousness for us that we need. God, I thank you so much for that and pray that you would help us to live in light of that in your name. Amen.